Never get used to that voice. May we and all beings be peaceful, joyful, light in body and spirit. May we and all beings be safe and free from harm. May we and all beings be free from anger, afflictions, anxiety, and fear. This morning, I want to continue with the topic of right effort, because I found myself inspired by Daigen's Dharma talk from last week. The transition to right effort is a transition to a new subgroup, if you will, of spokes on the wheel. The subgroup comprises right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And it's typically called the division of concentration, taking its name from the final spoke, the collective aim of this group of practices. And right effort, as its name suggests, provides the energy necessary for undertaking the mental training to cultivate mindfulness and concentration. More specifically, right effort is directed at the following four aims. Sometimes these are called the four great endeavors. To prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome states, to abandon unwholesome states that have already arisen, to arouse wholesome states that have not yet arisen, and to maintain and perfect wholesome states that have already arisen. And I want to focus on the first of these two aims, first two of these four aims this morning. The unwholesome states mentioned here are states of mind that are mixed with one or more of what we sometimes call the five hindrances. The first one is sense desire. Sometimes this is understood in a narrow way, any agreeable sensation, a sight, a sound, a taste, a smell, a taste of strawberry cheesecake ice cream, for example. Sometimes in a broad way, a desire or a yearning for wealth, for fame, for power, The second hindrance we call ill will, anger, resentment, the holding of a grudge against someone for perhaps eating all of the strawberry cheesecake ice cream. The third hindrance is a combination of dullness, 
and drowsiness. Together, these two words share the commonality of mental unwieldiness. It's a kind of a mental inertia. You just can't get yourself going. You feel foggy, having a heavy mind. Perhaps there's an excessive inclination to sleep. The fourth hindrance is the opposite, restlessness and worry. We all know that feeling when the mind just seems too active. You're jumping from this thing to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, and you just can't sit down and stop. Maybe you keep dragging up past mistakes and worry about what the consequences of those mistakes might be at some point in the future were they to come to light. And the fifth hindrance is doubt. But this isn't the kind of critical doubt that arises from a probing mind, the kind of activity that the Buddha encouraged us to engage in. Don't just take what I say as the truth because I said it. Go and figure it out for yourself if what I say has any grounds to it. The kind of doubt that in his talk last week, Daigen said is healthy for us to cultivate. But a lingering uncertainty concerning the Buddha, the Dharma, and the path. Something that hinders one's ability to commit to this spiritual practice, this way of life, a Buddhist way of life. Effort is very much needed to prevent or to forestall the arising of any one or more of these hindrances in conjunction with some kind of sensory experience. You taste something delicious and you want more of it. So as a result, you become greedy. A thought. Someone says something to you, it doesn't strike you in a way that you like. So you start to get angry with that person, you hold a grudge against them. Hatch a plan to get back at them, to sabotage them in some way. A memory might arise in your mind and provoke some anxiety about some future event. And when any one of these things happens mentally in conjunction with the arising of one of these hindrances, there thereby is an unwholesome state of mind present within you. So again, we want to exert effort to prevent this from happening, but of course it's not possible to do this perfectly. And by perfectly, I mean, in such a way that no hindrances will ever arise, none, oh, no unwholesome states will ever exist in us or in others. And the reason for this is my dear friend and one of my teachers, Jogan Adam Salzberg Sensei would say, 
is that perfection understood in this way is not possible because the mind never stops being an open field of creativity. The mind never stops being an open field of creativity. The ocean is never still. There are always waves. And even if it looks really still, just go beneath the surface. There's a whole world down there. Literally. When we recite the four Bodhisattva vows, and in particular, the second vow, we sometimes say delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. You might wonder how it is that you can put an end to something that's inexhaustible, especially if it's the case that the mind never stops being an open field of creativity, if the ocean is never still. That's why I, when I recite the four bodhisattva vows, like to say, delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to understand them. What are the causes and conditions that give rise to unwholesome mental states? And how can I work against their arising? For the fruits of such a labor are being more mindful, more focused and living in a more upright way. At the root of the five hindrances is ignorance. And in the opinion of some, it is this fundamental or root ignorance that we need to address in our practice that our efforts should be directed towards. Reb Anderson writes that our fundamental human delusion is the belief that the mind and object are really separate. And that the self and other have independent existence. So we might say that what we're working to correct is our understanding of the interdependence of all things or as Thich Nhat Hanh might put it, the interbeing of all things, that all things inter-are, and that all things are empty. And so I want to spend the rest of my talk this morning saying some things about interdependence and about emptiness. But I need to talk about something else first. Surprise, surprise. Essence. We often talk about the essence of something. Something's having an essence. Maybe you've said at some point that a song or a poem or a painting really speaks to the essence of who you are as a person. But what is this thing in essence? 
one of our great ancestors, Nagarjuna, who's arguably the most significant Buddhist philosopher after the historical Buddha, offers the following answer. An essence is something where its existence and its identity depends on nothing outside of itself. Alternatively, in essence, is something where its existence and its identity depend all and only on itself. And if something has an essence, writes Nagarjuna, then it is not empty. By contrast, anything without an essence is empty. And finally, using these claims as a foundation, Nagarjuna, in a very famous work titled The Fundamental Wisdom of the Middle Way, goes on to argue that we are without an essence in this sense, and so we are empty. And even better, everything is without an essence in this sense. All things are empty. Let me give you a summary of how this is supposed to go on his view. First, Nagarjuna points out to us that all things depend for their existence on a complex network of causes and conditions. Second, all things depend for their existence and identity on being wholes made up of parts, which are in turn themselves parts of larger wholes. And third, all things depend for their identity on what we might call conceptual imputation. It's just a poetic way of saying that a thing's identity depends upon its being conceptualized in a particular way. How it fits into a larger network or structure of concepts that you and I and puppies and pandas and red pandas, which I found out are not actually pandas, used to navigate the world. So let me give you an example. Let's take a dollar bill that you probably have in your purse or in your wallet or in your pocket. And where I better prepared for this talk, I was going to have one up my sleeve, but I don't, it's out there somewhere. That dollar bill depends for its existence on a complex network of causes and conditions the sun, the sky, the trees, the flowers, the whole great earth, all work together to produce the materials that make up the dollar bill. It also depends on people to harvest those materials, to transport them, to process them, and so on. And all of these people involved in this process depend on their communities for support, 
communities that in turn depend on the sun, the sky, the trees, the flowers, the oceans. And you get the idea. The dollar bill is also a whole. It's one whole dollar bill, which will not get you very far these days. Yet it's made up of parts. Various fibers woven together in various ways and dyed in a particular way to produce a particular pattern. And at the same time, this one whole dollar bill is also part of a much larger whole, namely a system of currency. And finally, the dollar bill is the thing that it is because it's conceptualized in a particular way. By whom? the United States Department of Treasury. At some point, somebody said, this thing, this is where it would really be nice for me to have a dollar bill in hand, I don't. This thing, imagine I do, pointing to this object that we call a dollar bill, shall henceforth be known as a dollar bill. And the following thing shall be true of it. It shall have a certain monetary value and whatever else you want to build into that list of things. And by conceptualizing it in that way and all of us agreeing to go along with this declaration, this object becomes what we call a dollar bill. Became part of a larger network or structure of concepts that we use to navigate the world around us. So as you can see, the dollar bill depends for its existence and its identity, not at all on itself alone. Its existence and its identity depend entirely on things external to it. We might say that a dollar bill is made up of entirely non-dollar bill things, fibers and dyes and whatever else goes into the making of such a thing. It's not an essence, doesn't have one either. It's empty. I've taken some time this morning to lay out some abstract reasoning and to give you this example involving a dollar bill because here's the punchline. You and I are no different than the dollar bill. You and I exist by way of a complex network of causes and conditions. We're here because of the sun and the great earth, friends and family, the communities that support us. We are wholes made up of parts, 
bones, muscles, sinews, and are in turn parts of larger wholes. Each and every one of us is a part of this Sangha. And our identities are in part the product of how we conceptualize ourselves and how others conceptualize us. It's become rather fashionable over the last 10 years. I've noticed that when someone is introduced on a radio program or a television show, in addition to giving their name, this is Taishin. They also list a number of things about them. Poet, activist, cat dad, former professor. I find that practice rather interesting, but that's a talk for another time. So we too are not an essence, nor do we have an essence. We are empty. There is no self. This does not mean, however, that we do not exist. It means only that we do not exist in the way that we usually think we do. We do not exist absolutely or independently of all other things in the way that an essence or something that has an essence does. But we exist, we might say, conventionally or interdependently. We inter-are, to quote Thich Nhat Hanh again, just as the dollar bill does. Our interdependent mode of existence just is emptiness. To be empty just is to exist in this interdependent way. That's why I had us recite the Heart Sutra this morning. Recall the lines, form here is only emptiness. Emptiness is only form. Form is no other than emptiness. Emptiness, no other than form. Sensations, perceptions, mental formations are all also like this. And it's incredibly important that we understand this teaching. Here are some words from a famous physicist. A human being is a part of the whole called by us the universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and affection for a few persons nearest to us, 
And so our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening the circle of understanding and compassion, to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. The physicist who wrote those words is Albert Einstein. But it's not enough to understand this in an intellectual way, merely or simply with our heads. We need to have what I'd like to call an embodied understanding of this teaching. It must penetrate our hearts too. And for this to happen, we must look inside. As Uchiyama Roshi encourages us to do, we should sit Zazen for 10 years, then for 10 more years, and then for another 10 years. And so I want to close my talk this morning in a familiar way by leaving you with a question. The question appears in case 47 of the Mumon Khan, often translated the gateless gate, a famous collection of koans, public cases, stories with a riddle to them we might say. And the case is titled Totsotsu's Three Barriers. Great master Totsotsu Etsu is an important teacher in the Rinzai lineage of Zen Buddhism. And he set up three barriers for his students. And here is the first barrier that he presented to them. The purpose of making one's way through grasses and asking a master about the subtle truth is only to realize one's self nature. Tell me now, you venerable monks, where is the self nature in this very moment? And again, the purpose of making one's way through grasses and asking a master about the subtle truth is only to realize one's self nature. So tell me now, you venerable monks, where is the self nature in this very moment? The phrase, making one's way through grasses, has two meanings. The first is sweeping away countless delusions. Born in part from the five hindrances that I mentioned at the beginning of this talk. 
And the second is that we often must travel through grassy places, or in our case, through foresty places, to find a teacher, to find a Sangha, to find a Zendo. But why do we do this? It's a beautiful day outside, beautiful Sunday. You could be anywhere right now. Why are you here? Some of us, I assume, are here to find out something about who we are, about what we are, about what this life is. And so I encourage you to keep searching, to keep looking, but not out there, in here. Exert great effort, joyful effort, meticulous effort in clarifying what we sometimes call the great matter. Do not wander aimlessly through sunshine and shadows. And sit and sit and sit and smile and laugh and sing and dance. And all the while ask yourself, where is your self nature at this moment? Where is your self-nature in this moment? Where is it? Thank you very much.